Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. And we're going to get the narrative and then we are going to go back through it. Luke chapter 24. Actually, you know what? Let's, Let's back up. Let's go to Luke 23 and let's start in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, Why do you seek the living? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is on toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread." As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do your doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, praise God, and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power, from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And that's the end of the book of Luke. <laughs> Whoa. We started about almost two years ago, we started going through the book of Luke, and it has been such an honor and a privilege to walk through this gospel letter. Through this gospel letter, we have watched as the words of Jesus have touched every area of our life. We've watched how that even as Paul said in the New Testament, that it is by beholding the glory of God, which is found in Christ, that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. And so as we've watched Jesus through this book of Luke, I believe that God has been changing this body from one degree of glory to another. We've watched as this has touched literally every part of our lives. We've watched as how Jesus has been the one who has exercised not just 
the ability, not just the authority, but also the affection that was needed to redeem a people that God had chosen for himself. And we've watched as Jesus has done it. And now today we watch as he finishes the work that was set before him. The work that God had placed before him that he submitted unto the Father to do and took the authority that God had given him to lay down his life and also the authority to pick it back up again. Amen? No one came and took Jesus by surprise. Judas didn't catch him off guard in the garden. The the soldiers and those who drug him away and put him before Pilate and then Herod and back before Pilate again, before the high priest, he wasn't caught off guard. It was, as Peter would say on the day of Pentecost before everyone, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, this is what God had planned from before the foundation of the earth so that he might be not only the just, but the justifier. Amen? That he might not only be just. God is just. He cannot help but be just. He is just. But this was so that he might also be the justifier, so that it might be all of grace and not by works, lest any man should boast and rob a jealous God of his glory. For he will not share it with another. For Jesus died for our sin. And we learned that well in Sunday school, didn't we? But he was raised for our justification so that we might stand before God all who believe might stand before God just as if they had never sinned justified righteous before God not according to their works but according to what Christ had done for them and on their behalf Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which is arguably one of the earliest testimonies to the resurrection that we have. Uh, The book of Corinthians is one of the earliest books of the New Testament that has been written. Uh, Galatians is also early on in the recorded, uh, before the Gospels have even been penned, Paul is testifying to this resurrection. Why is that important? Because for centuries there have been skeptics who have tried to believe that the resurrection was made up over time. It's like when, when good friends of mine, when I was a kid, used to go on fishing uh, trips and they'd come back and every time they told the story, the fish would get a little bit bigger. And people would say that the resurrection, that didn't really happen. It was more symbolic thing that, that the, the, it, the disciples, by following this man Jesus and what he had taught, they experienced this enlightening, uplifting thing that happened. And then through time, they just explained that through this idea of a resurrection it's more symbolic and and over time it just became this thing that they said was true it didn't really happen and it happened over like over 120 years but the book of corinthians was written literally not even 20 less than 25 years after the resurrection of jesus christ and listen to what paul says now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, we're going to stop there because, and we're going to go on, but let's just stop there real quick. He says, I would remind you. So Paul isn't writing something that this is the first time now that the Corinthians have heard this. Paul didn't say, hey guys, I want to share with you something you've never heard before. He's saying, I want to what? Remind you, which means what? They've already heard this message. And what is the message? Well, it is a message. The gospel, and what does the gospel mean? The gospel means good news. He says, I want to remind you about this message of good news. What does he say? That I preach to you. So here, this is being written 20 to 22 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as he's writing it, this means earlier than 20 to 22 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul was already in Corinth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is, as he's about to tell us, of first importance, okay? We're going to go back to that in a minute, but let's get to what he says the gospel is. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So now Paul is saying... When I came and I preached this to you, it wasn't something that even I was sharing with you as some kind of like revelation, but rather it was a message that I received. I was the messenger who received the good news, said, that is amazing, brought it over to you and shared it with you. And you go, that is amazing because how do we know? It says they received it. They received that good news, that gospel message about what? Well, what does he say? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more, grab this, five hundred brothers at one time, what does this say next? Most of whom are what? Is anyone there with me? 1 Corinthians 15? We can, should we get back up? I can start over. Most of whom are what? Still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, which means they have died. Okay? Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So Paul says, we preach this gospel message, and what's the gospel message? It's the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the burial and submission to God's will and the resurrection of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. This is the heart of the gospel. And the gospel affects all of our life. And that's about what Paul's about to walk into as you finish reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So here's this message. And what's the message? Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. This is the gospel. And Paul says this is a message of first importance. Beyond anything else that ever we could preach, this is what we ought to preach. And every time we preach, it should be connected to this. 
Paul would say that, that I, I determined among you to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. What was Paul saying? He's saying no matter where I am or where I'm at, what I'm preaching, I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because without the gospel, it doesn't matter what we say. Without the cross of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, everything we say is powerless, it is temporal, and it holds no value until it is connected to the sacrificial life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this substitutionary atonement for us and in our place, until it is connected to that, it has no power. And so Paul wasn't saying, every time I get up, I'm going to preach the same message the same way every time with the same scripture. Rather, what we now learn from Luke chapter 24, what did Jesus say to the guys on the road to Emmaus? He told them how that all the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, the prophets, the the law, the prophets, the Psalms, how it all was concerning who? Him. What was Paul saying? He's saying every time I preach to you, whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's just actually the message of the good news of the gospel that Jesus did, it's all going to be connected to Christ and him crucified. That is the message of first importance. And it is what we what? We receive, we stand in, and by which we are being saved. We we have been saved. We talk about that. I've been saved. But do you know what you're really saying when you're saying, I have been saved? You're saying, I've been justified. That by faith in Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, I have been justified. God has declared me righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And that's what Paul means when he says, which you've received. It's a message we've received. All of our lives, we live with this understanding, whether we acknowledge it verbally or not, we live with an understanding. Romans chapter 1 will say that, that everyone truly in their hearts believes, but we trade the truth about God for a lie. And so deep inside, we really do believe that there is this God and that if there is a God, we are not it and we do not line up to this God. And there's distance between us and him. And we know that it's because of us and not because of him. So when we come and we hear a message that there was one, this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life so that it could count for your imperfect life, who died a death that could count for the death that you deserve because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so death had to be served. There must be blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it was Jesus' blood and his death that this message says now counts for your death, the death you deserve, the death you were condemned to die. Jesus stood in your place, condemned, and died for you, for your sin. And we could celebrate that, but that only brings us to ground zero. He died for our sins, but what's the next part, the missing part? He was raised for our justification, right? And so it's in the resurrection of the Jesus Christ that our justification is made sure. It's made sure. And this is what Luke wants Theophilus and he wants us to understand. And it's what Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15 for. 
We've received it. We've been justified. But then he carries on. What does he say? He says, in which you stand. And so there's this past part of salvation that's called justification. We've been justified. But there's this ongoing present part of salvation that we call sanctification. That's where we stand firm day by day on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time we fall on our faith, we stay on our face, we stand back up in faith. The, what's the difference between a righteous man and an unrighteous man? Proverbs would say that, an, that the, the righteous and the unrighteous both fall, but a righteous man gets back up seven times. Well, why is he getting back up? Because he, what, well, let's back up. What makes a man righteous? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? It's not by what we have done. And so even though Solomon may have not fully understood what he was writing, we understand by looking through the lens of the cross that what makes a man righteous is the blood of Jesus. So why can a righteous man get back up? Because on the ground, he remembers the message he received that justified him before God, that is sanctifying him, and he stands back up. Why? Because it's not about what I can do. It's about what God in Christ has done for me. That's what sanctification is, church. It's not becoming perfect. We strive for perfection. We're trying for perfection. Why? Because we love our God. And He's perfect. And we want to be like Him. But are we going to succeed in that before we see Jesus face to face? No. Should we pretend like we are? No. And if we are, we've lost the plot. That's why we say this place should be a place that say it's, 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 it's a safe place. To not be okay. Because we understand that we're not okay. And we shouldn't pretend like we are if we're not. Why? Because all that serves to do is condemn ourselves and condemn each other and say we don't really believe the gospel. Because the gospel tells us we fall down because we're human. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners in need of a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And when we believe, we become simultaneously saint and sinner. Justified before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Being sanctified day by day as we stand firm on that message that what he did counts for us. And it's not about what I can do. It's about what he has done. But then there's another one. It says, and by which you are being saved. And so there's this past part of salvation. There's this present ongoing part of salvation. And then there's this future tense salvation. And that's what we call glorification. Where one day all those who predestined and elected by God in faith believe in Jesus Christ will stand before their maker and he will say to them, welcome. Well done and faith, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Father, those who have been adopted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And not one of us will stand on that day. And when someone says, if they say, why should we let you in, which I don't really think is going to happen, but it's funny to think about it that way. Mike, why should we let you in? Not according to any good thing that I've done. 
but only according to the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for me. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for me and in my place. Amen? So none of that was in my notes. Are you ready? Let's start now. There's something in that that I want you to see, though, that gets us to going here. Paul is talking not about a symbolic thing that happened. And he names names. Did you grab that? He appeared to this guy and this guy and to 500 people. And what did he say? Most of whom are what? Still alive. Do you know why Paul said that? He's like, so if you want to go check my story, go talk to these guys. Did you notice that Luke did the same thing? Can I ask you a question? Ever in the book of Luke, has he ever mentioned Cleopas before? I mean, what kind of name is that even? Cleopas. We've never even heard it until Luke 24. And then Luke just like randomly throws Cleopas in there. Oh, and by the way, one of the guys on the road was Cleopas. Now, some scholars actually argue, and, and I don't know, it's fun to think about, that Luke is actually the other guy on the road. We don't know for sure, but it's fun to think about. But we know for sure who one of them is because Luke said who it was. It's Cleopas. Why did Luke say Cleopas? Do you know that early church tradition says that Cleopas was one of the most outstanding eyewitnesses to the gospel message in the early generations of the church? Because this was a guy who was still alive, whom those who received this message for the first time could go and be like, hey, you know you're in this dude's book, right? Did that really happen? Yeah, in fact, can I tell you about it? This is what really happened. I mean, Luke only had so much scroll left to write. I got all day, right? Cleopas became this eyewitness to the, to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And why does Paul name names? Why does Luke name names? Because this is not some symbolic, ethereal, information, revelation, enlightenment thing that's going on that we're supposed to try to attain to and get some kind of goose flesh feeling about and go, oh. It's news. It's a message about things that actually happened. It's fact. It's fact. It's a message about things that happened. It's reality. And so to really get at this, we have to go all the way back to Luke chapter 1. And we're just going to start over and preach all the way through the whole book. Amen. I'm just kidding. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I've, I've, done my, I've done my best over the last two years to keep us coming back to these verses. To remind us why Luke is writing to Theophilus. Do you remember why? Verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We've all been taught a lot of different things about Jesus in a lot of different places by a lot of different people. We have even fashioned for ourselves images of Jesus in our own likeness and in our own hearts trying to make Jesus more like us instead of make ourselves more like Jesus. And Luke writes these words so that we 
along with Theophilus, might have certainty. It's a word that we don't talk about a lot in church anymore, assurance. Probably because for a lot of us, we don't believe that we have it. We sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, and and we sing it uh, wistfully, wishing that it was something that we actually had instead of singing it victoriously because it's something that we possess. This has been my greatest desire going through the book of Luke, that assurance might be something that we could talk about and sing about with full faith, confidence in Jesus Christ as a church together. I want to talk to you about this a little bit. Verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Uh, first thing I want to say, notice that he refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. Luke is part one. There's a second book called Acts, which is part two. And in Acts, in the book of Acts, Luke refers to two other people as most excellent. And in both cases, those were men who did not come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were men who had high privilege and esteem in society. And though they knew stuff about Jesus, they did not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's almost like Paul is writing this to Theophilus as a warning, saying, don't go the way of the other most excellence, but rather have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught in Jesus Christ. That's number one. The second thing I want you to see is in verse number one at the very end. What does it say? It says, things that have been accomplished among us. Jesus was at work accomplishing things. This isn't just, hey, I wanted you to hear about how Jesus lived. This isn't just, hey, I wanted you to see what Jesus, uh, how he lived his life so that you can live a life like him. He's saying there are things that Jesus accomplished. To accomplish something means that there was a task. To have a task means that that task was set. To have a task set means that task was given. It was given by God. Jesus was on a mission and he set to work accomplishing every task that God put in front of him. And from the very beginning, Luke lets us know, this is what I'm trying to show you. Not just what Jesus did because he lived, what Jesus accomplished because he was on mission from God. Then he says that they received these things from eyewitnesses. So again, this is a message that's being delivered as a news story. This is what happened. Here's the eyewitness account. Here's another eyewitness. This guy was there. That guy was there. He was there. She was there. They were there. They saw it. This is what they said. This is how they saw it. This is what Jesus accomplished. This happened. It happened. And it's a church. Can you just look at me real quick? It's as simple as that. Our faith is founded on something that happened. 
We don't come here every week and sing songs so that we can stir up our emotions and then we get out the Bible and we teach things that nobody can really understand so that we can sit here and kind of go, um, I think I get it, um, uh, yes. If that's what you think Christianity is, you have not heard a single word. We come here every week to remind ourselves about something that happened and our faith is in that it happened for us. That it was accomplished for us. And because it has been accomplished for us, we have now received the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love of God. That's what this is. It's as simple as that. It happened. You either believe that it happened or you don't. And if you believe that it happened and you believe that it happened for you, it changes you. Why? Because God's not angry with me anymore, if it's true. And if God's not angry with me anymore, then when I fall down and mess up or screw up or have a bad thought or say something I shouldn't when I'm preaching, my wife's going to remind me I shouldn't say screw up. I say it all the time. It's my vernacular. She's looking at me right now, okay? It's okay. We all mess up, okay? We screw up. We sin. We have bad thoughts. We do bad things. We are sinners by nature. But Jesus came and the Holy Spirit applies what he's done to our hearts so that we can have a new nature. And he begins to change us. But you know what? Sometimes we still fall back into our old nature. And when we do, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, do you know what that means for us? It means we can run to God instead of away from him. Why? Because he loves us. He's not angry with us. Can you just grab that for a minute? The gospel means you can run to God instead of away from him. If you really believe it. But if you don't, you will continue to run because you will continue to believe that God is a God who is angry and he's angry at you. And in a sense, yes, but God was willing that his wrath toward you might be poured out on his son. And Jesus, condemned on that cross, stood between God and us And as the propitiation for our sins, he fully absorbed the wrath of God for us and in our place. Fully. Which means no more wrath for those who believe. So when you mess up, you run to him instead of away from him. When I come home from work or from being gone and I come home, I know instantly how things have gone in my house when I get back. Do you know how? When things have gone well, my kids run to me. Daddy! Ah! (laughs) Tackle me at the door. When I come in and like nobody comes to daddy, I know it's been a hard day. Why? Because my kids are still afraid that there's going to be some wrath left over for them when daddy comes home. If my kids understood how much I love them, they'd run to me every time. And no matter how much I might be disappointed in what happened or whatever, nothing is going to change how I love my kids. And I'm a sinner. I don't love them perfectly. 
the way that I should. God's still sanctifying me in that. I get angry sometimes. I shout and throw a fit myself like a little toddler sometimes. A lot of good that does, right? But God's perfect, and he's holy. And if he said that all of his wrath has already been poured out on Christ on our behalf, that means there's nothing left. And it's why Jesus on the cross would say, to Telestai, paid in full. It is finished. No more wrath. Amen? Luke writes, and he says that you may have certainty. The word that he uses there in the Greek is asphalion. And it's used two more times in the New Testament. Do you know when it's used? It's used in Acts 5.23, talking about a prison. And it says, we found the, presi- the, we found the prison... Asphalion, locked in all security. And it's used again in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 saying, While people are saying there is peace and security, Asphalion, then suddenly, uh, then sudden destruction will come upon them. The word means security, safety, stability. So what is Luke saying? He's saying, I want you to have, to know the security, safety, and stability of the things that you have been taught concerning Jesus. The same words used in the Septuagint in the Greek translation of the Old Testament 19 times, and almost every single time it means safety. Now we live in an age where knowing a thing is arbitrary. And it's convoluted. Knowing a thing is convoluted by how we feel about a thing. Yes? Truth has become whatever you feel rather than what actually is. But Luke writes about truth in such a way that he wants us to know things, as John Piper would say, the way uh, that one knows a mountain instead of the way that one knows a cloud. In our society, people know things the way they know clouds rather than the way they know mountains. And we should know the things that we've been taught about Jesus the way we know a mountain rather than the way we know a cloud. Luke writes to Theophilus, and the Holy Spirit uses Luke to write to us, and it's as if he's saying, I want you to have the locked down, bolted down security, rock solid, unshakable, unmovable safety of knowing and being assured of what we have been taught, that the asphalion is grounded in the resurrection. That security, that bolted down, safe and secure, never moving, never going away, knowledge about what we have been taught about Jesus is grounded to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is it so important? As Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if Jesus has not been raised, it's all for nothing. But if Jesus has been raised, and Paul would say, but in fact he has been raised, the first fruits of all who believe, then that means that everything that Jesus did matters. 
Why is it important? Because like Theophilus, we are sinners. We, every single one of us. We are blasphemers of God, our creator, traitors. We daily, daily, we daily bite the hand that feeds us. And we curse the one who gives us breath and life. We are by nature children of wrath, and we have traded the truth about God for a lie, and we have worshipped created things rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We make His good gifts an end in themselves, making ourselves gluttons and drunkards, idolaters and adulterers. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. And we need a Savior who can deal with our sins, yes. But even more importantly, our sin nature. And not only deal with them, but forgive them. And so Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, sets his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he was on a mission to accomplish that which God had set before him. This Jesus, this God-man, is your Savior. Whether you realize it or not, he is your Savior, the one who came to deal with your sins and forgive them by his death on a tree. He bore your sins. He did it on purpose. He did it according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Peter says in Acts 2.23. And Luke wants us to know the lockdown, absolutely secure, never changing reality of our God. The God-man Jesus Christ and of our salvation in the forgiveness of our sins by the shedding of his blood, his death on the cross for us and in our place, his burial in submission to God, fully at rest in the power of the Father. Two times God has rested, and only twice. Once at the beginning of all creation, and on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. And then Jesus, after he stretched his hands on the cross and breathed his last, on the seventh day, he rested from all the work that he had done. Because it was finished, and there was nothing left to do, and it was very good. It was more than good. It was our salvation. Luke wants us to understand this. That because Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification, his resurrection is how we know that our faith is not futile. His resurrection is how we know that we're not still in our sins. If only we believe. Luke wants us to know this. He wants us to know this like we know mountains and not like we know clouds. For Luke in his gospel account, it all culminates in this, the resurrection of Jesus. This is what makes the last 23 chapters worth writing and worth telling. Jesus did a lot of amazing things that affected a lot of people, but this, the resurrection, this changed everything. And so what does the resurrection do? It's, a, it's an earth-shattering historical event, yes. Yes. And that's what we've been talking about so far this morning. 
The experiences that the disciples and others have with Jesus after his death are not simply spiritual experiences. They are deeply personal. They walk with Jesus. They talk with Jesus. They eat with him. They embrace him. He says, touch me and see, do you have anything to eat? Why is this in the text? Because it happened. How insignificant is Jesus eating a piece of broiled fish? Like they could have just said like, and Jesus ate some fish. It's still, but I mean, how, what is the significant? And can I can just grab this for a minute, okay? There's no significance in the fish being broiled, okay? <laughs> Next week is not about how symbolic the broiled fish is about. Can I just tell you that right now, okay? Do you know what the significance of the broiled fish is? That's what Jesus ate. He ate broiled fish on that day. It happened. It's an historical event, but it's a history-shattering historical event, an earth-shattering historical event. These things are not simply symbolic of some higher truth, and we're supposed to milk them for some lesson. They're true. It's true, and we're supposed to proclaim them and believe them. The gospel is a message, a news report about the most important thing that has ever happened. And it happened. Luke names names. Like, isn't that what we want in every autobiographical book, right? Like, when finally all this political mess is over and certain people who are in certain places are finally done and they sit down because the only thing that anyone will ever hire them to do ever again is write a book, and they do, what do we want? We want names. Okay, what, seriously? What really happened over there? And who was there? We want names. And what does Luke and Matthew and Mark and John, what do they all do for us? They name names. Why? Cleopas, the women, Simon, Peter, why? Because if you want to check out what I'm saying, go ask them. Because at the time that these texts were written, they were still alive. And can I just tell you, when the global superpower is still in power and there is something that they want to squash that's just a story, they would have accomplished that. The Jews would have even accomplished it if it weren't for these rascally People like Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, who had everything going for him, educated by the most premier rabbi living at that time, a man of prestige and honor because he was a Roman citizen. If anyone had it going for him, it was Paul. And yet Paul was willing to give up his life. Why? Because he believed that what he was preaching was true. Not just that it was right, it was true, it actually happened. Right? When people are under extreme duress and torture, they don't hang on to what is false. Everyone has a breaking point. Talking about Navy SEAL operatives that have been trained to endure great hardship and trial and never break. These guys, they kept their story because it was true. And to deny it would be to deny themselves. And to, not, and to deny, more importantly, the one who gave up his life for them. 
For this is love, that one might give up his life for another. It's true. Over 500 people, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, go and ask. They'll be more than happy to tell you of the lockdown, unmovable certainty that they have in Jesus because of his resurrection. But then in Luke 24, we also find that the resurrection is the key to understanding the scriptures. Jesus appears to the women there, and what does it say? It says, and then they remembered his words. How many times in the book of Luke did we read that and they, they were kept from remembering? Or it was like a veil was, was over them. They, they, they didn't understand what Jesus... I mean, Jesus is like point blank. Guys, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to take me. It's going to happen. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm coming back. And they're like... Uh... So you're saying it's all going to be okay, right? Like, I mean, they don't really understand. But after Jesus' resurrection, what happens? Their minds are open. Why? Because the resurrection is the key to understanding the scriptures. It goes even deeper than that on the road to Emmaus as Jesus begins to unpack for them how that the scriptures are all about him. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So what does that mean? Well, it means that all through the Bible, sometimes implicitly and sometimes explicitly, Jesus is in the text. Example, at the very beginning, the Proto-Evangeline, the first gospel message God actually preaches in the book of Genesis after the fall, when he says, there is coming one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. Who was that? Jesus. And we know now rather explicitly because later it'll be said, this is that. But did you know right after that, there's an implicit marker of Jesus in the text? Because Adam and Eve, what did they do? They, they fashioned for themselves of their own works, of their own design, something to try and cover their nakedness, which was their shame because of their sin. And God says it, no, 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 no. The only way your sin is going to be covered is if I do it. And the first sacrifice is made as God kills an animal and takes the skin of the animal and covers the form of the nakedness of the man and the woman. So what is that? It's Jesus not explicitly, but implicitly. And if you walk through the text of the whole Bible, you will find Jesus again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Every story whispers or shouts his name. John Calvin said it this way, He, Christ, is Isaac, the beloved son of the Father, who was offered as a sacrifice, but nevertheless did not succumb to the power of death. He is Jacob, the watchful shepherd, who has such great care for the sheep which he guards. He is the good and compassionate brother Joseph, who in his glory was not ashamed to acknowledge his brothers, however lowly and abject their condition. He is the great sacrificer and bishop Melchizedek, who has offered an eternal sacrifice once for all. He is the sovereign lawgiver Moses, writing his law on the tablets of our hearts by his spirit. 
He is the faithful captain and guide Joshua to lead us to the promised land. He is the victorious and noble King David, bringing by his hand all rebellious power to subjection. He is the magnificent and triumphant King Solomon, governing his kingdom in peace and prosperity. He is the strong and powerful Samson, who by his death has overwhelmed all his enemies. This is what we should, in short, seek in the whole of Scripture's truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift throughly through the law and prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. Therefore, rightly does St. Paul say in another passage that we should know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Amen. So the resurrection is our key to understanding the scriptures because once we understand who Jesus is, we can go back and now it's the key that unlocks every passage of scripture. The resurrection also gives us a powerful message for the world. Did you notice through all of Luke 24, not one person who saw Jesus resurrected sat on the information? The women see him and they just sit there and like have a tea party and just talk about it themselves. Is that what happened? No. They rush back to the brothers who don't believe them. Idle women talk. Except for one, Peter, and he runs to the tomb, runs to the tomb to see. And we hear then implicitly through what is said to the guys from the road to Emmaus that later Jesus actually appeared to Simon. Simon comes back. He tells the guys, because they're the ones telling him, he appeared to Simon too. The guys on the road to Emmaus travel all through the day to get away from Jerusalem. They get to where they're going. They compel Jesus to stay with them because it's night and you shouldn't be traveling on the road because it's dangerous. And Jesus, their eyes are open when he breaks the bread and they're like, it's Jesus! And he's gone. Do they just sit there and finish their beer and and just be like, that was amazing? No. They get up and they leave and they rush back the way they came through the night, through the danger to get to the brothers and say what? Jesus is alive. Because when you understand that Jesus is alive, that he came back from the dead, that he was raised from the dead, you don't sit on that information. And no one in the text did. Every single one of them that witnessed it told about it, and Jesus even tells them, you are my witnesses to these things. Luke will go on to write in the book of Acts, chapter 1, Jesus actually saying to them, but wait, you shall receive power when that the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, first in Judea, then first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and throughout all the world. Lastly, the resurrection leads to the ascension and shows us Jesus as the true king. If he is raised, if he is king, 
then he must be obeyed and served as king. Question 49 of the New City Catechism says, Where is Jesus now? And the answer is, Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. Jesus is king. He's a risen king. And that is what makes his resurrection different from all the others. Why don't we have a day celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus? Because Lazarus isn't king. Lazarus didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father and isn't now seated there ruling and reigning, as Psalm 110 says, until he makes every enemy his footstool. Jesus is. Because Jesus is the king. And Lazarus was raised to die again. But Jesus was resurrected in his glorified body, the same kind of glorified body that you and I will once put on when we have shed this mortal flesh and put on the immortal, when we shed this seed that holds back what we have and we put on the immortal and get this, guys, it's our body. It was Jesus' body that was resurrected, but it was resurrected in glory. And our body that we will shed when we die, we will put on in glory. It's our body. We're not looking for a disembodiment. We're looking for a re-embodiment. We're looking for a resurrection. Why? Because if we died in Christ and He raised, we also shall raise with Him. And there we shall be seated with our Lord who rules forever. Amen. Will you stand with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this text that reminds us that the resurrection is an earth-shattering historical event. It is the one thing that unlocks the scriptures for us. It's the message that you've given us to proclaim that in you there is forgiveness of sin. And God, it is our perfect and holy sign that you are not just a man. You are God and you're the king and you are risen. And today we celebrate that your resurrection in life means life for us. Help us, God, to believe it today. Not because it's right, but because it's true and because it changes everything for us. We pray all these things in the name of our triune God, the Father who spoke it, the Son who did it, and the Spirit who applies it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.